Hello, I'm Joanna Lumley. I'm in my garden in London, and I'm walking down the garden path to the music room. In there, I'll find my husband, the composer and conductor, Stephen Barlow. Now, we've been married almost 40 years, and I think, however long you've been with someone, you have questions that you'd like to ask your partner. So this podcast is my chance to ask Stephen the questions I've always wanted to ask him about one of his and my greatest passions, classical music. Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. Hello, Maestro. Maestro, here we are again. I so love it. I love sitting in this music room, sometimes with rain, sometimes with faint aeroplanes, but best of all with us and with our subject, which is music. And I just wanted to ask you today, what do you think we should talk about? Well, I'd love to natter a bit about how it happens, how artists happen to start singing and how they do it and the differences between someone like Ella Fitzgerald, for example, who didn't have a singing lesson in her life Mm. and a singer in the opera world who, without a shadow of a doubt, spent several years with a singing teacher to develop their voice. Isn't that an extraordinary thing to think about? It is. And what what is it based on? Is it from somebody who can sing in tune when he or she's eight years old, or or how does it start? For an opera singer? Yeah. Well, it's a very late developing thing, actually. You know I do a little, I do about 40, 50 hours teaching at the, or coaching rather, at the Birmingham Conservatoire. Mm. So I work with mainly the postgraduates, and I'm always fascinated how they, as singers, started. What's drawn them to a conservatoire, which is the starting place for looking for a career in singing. And many of them tell different stories. Some of them might have been singing in choirs since they were 12. Some of them might only have started singing when they were 17 or 18 and had the occasional lesson and they took to it rather quickly. A boy chorister, for example, and there should be more girl choristers, and I hope there will be before I die. There certainly should be. But a boy chorister can, at the age of 12, at their peak, have a beautiful tone and sound, and they can sing beautifully legato, you know, smoothly. They can sound wonderful. And you could be mistaken for thinking, well, that's a dead cert for someone who will become a singer. Because that's not how it works. Someone who's brilliant at that age, strangely enough, is less likely in the main. Why? Because the voice develops through your teens. It changes with a boy. But the voice begins to develop its adult life in the teens. Uh And by the time students come to a music college, say 18, they're still 10 years away from having a voice that will be well-rounded and fully mature. And voices continue to change throughout one's life. 
Do you know when you're 18 and you're hoping to go to the conservatoire, incidentally, do you have to audition or do you just pay to go to school? Of course you do. So like a university, you have to be accepted. It's competitive, yeah. Would you know, and this is a childish thing to say, but would you know if you were a soprano or a mezzo? No, this is another misconception because we're talking about range here. Mm. Only when your voice is well matured and fully trained because you can do things that you couldn't dream of after you've had a full vocal training. You might have more notes at the top or you might have more notes at the bottom because that's the whole process of developing the voice. But at music colleges, there's always a ruckus going on between vocal coaches. One might say that a girl is a mezzo, going to be a mezzo, and another will say, no, no, no. Tell me what a mezzo is, a mezzo-soprano. Starting from the lowest, you have a bass in the abduction from the Seraglio by Mozart, we hear the lowest note in what is probably in standard repertoire, which is a very low D sung by Osmin. <laughs> Next up is the bass baritone. Take José Van Damme's performance of Mozart's Don Juan, Don Giovanni, a very coveted role for any bass baritone. Then we have a baritone like Gino Becchi, who was a master of Italian repertory. Here he is in Rossini's Barber of Seville. And the tenor, which is immortalized by Luciano Pavarotti, one of the most recognized voices of all. That's the Nesson Dorma voice, isn't it? Yes, the yeah. tenors, yeah. The lowest of the women's voices is the contralto, Kathleen Ferrier singing Ombra Mai Fu from Handel Xerxes, for example. And above contralto, next is the mezzo-soprano, like the wonderful Dame Janet Baker, singing Handel's Oratorio Joshua. And last but not least, you have a soprano, which of course is what Barbara Bonney was, a wonderful soprano. Here she is in Strauss's Rosenkavalier in the presentation of the Rose scene. But there's a wealth of difference between sopranos. Some might have a high D, you know, this. And if anybody can actually sing that who's listening to this, then come and see me straight away. (laughs) (laughs) And Um, when is that note used? Is that Queen of the Night stuff? no, 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 the Queen of the Night's even higher. That's the highest opera role ever written. The Queen of the Night, Mozart's Magic Flute. Du bist 
this is all about the development. You cannot know. This debate goes on and students can get confused because I go in as a, as a coach for postgrads, the more mature students. So I'm coaching music and text. They often say to me, but I'm told I'm a soprano and that someone says I'm a mezzo. And I try and avoid this by simply saying, then choose repertoire that is comfortable for you, i.e. the range is comfortable. It's terribly important to know that in Mozart and Haydn's day, they would have been writing all their operas for singers they knew. Mm. So when Mozart wrote The Magic Flute, for example, for Schikaneder's company, he would have known there was a soprano in the company who could sing those notes. The whole role is, is fantastically virtuoso, and it's got a vast range. It's also got some very low notes. But the composers would have known which singer was going to do it. Now we come to these operas, and we say, oh, well, a soprano can sing this role. They can sing any soprano role. Wrong. Because every soprano role has slightly different demands, slightly different range, and singers have different colours. We tend to talk about heavier voices and lighter voices. And as you age, does your voice change? I mean, of course, of course, it's it like does. everything else. So, so men's voices, tenor voices, would come down maybe to a baritone. Well, you, it's a very good example of this. Placido Domingo, of course, mm. he was one of the greatest ever tenors. And towards the end of his career, he did sing some baritone roles. Because, of course, it's purely to do with your physiognomy, the body. The body gets older, and so the voice will naturally change. Mm. Here he is taking on the baritone role of Simone Bocconegra in Verdi's opera, which was much later in his career. <laughs> Let's put it this way. If your voice isn't really fully mature until you're 28, 29, 30, and it's very exceptional that someone has a really mature voice earlier than that, then you might have, from the age of 30, you might have 20 years, 20 years singing the roles that you are made on this earth for. But after 50... Most singers find that things are changing. The voice may get darker, i.e. richer. You may not have the same ease because, of course, the vocal cords age like everything else. If you've looked after your voice and maintained your technique and kept going back to a singing teacher for objective advice, then you can go on singing later. But a singer's life at the peak of their profession, is short. Does a singer know when their time is up? If you listen to older singers talking, the most sensitive of them will say that they always want to stop singing at the moment they feel they are not giving of their best. And one rather early retirement is a very, very lovely old friend of ours, Dame Janet Baker. Mm. 
And I actually worked on her last production at Glyndebourne, yeah. Orfeo. I was on the music staff, assistant conducting. And so many of us were very wistful and sad that she decided to stop singing opera for sure. She just made that decision, and she's talked about this too, that she didn't want to go on singing beyond the moment at which she thought she was at her best. Dame Janet Baker, at the height of her powers, taking on the mezzo-soprano role of Orfeo in Gluck's opera Orfeo et Eurydice. This happens to people who use their bodies in virtually every walk of life. So dancers, sportsmen, people know when their time is up and they're not going to, they're not going to be first anymore. Mm. Actors sadly don't know this, so we bang on until we're dragged <laughs> off with a hook. But tell me, I just want to talk about somebody who you've worked a lot with and whose voice is so sublime that you never thought it would ever stop. But I think she's probably stopped singing publicly now, and that's Dame Kirita Kanawa. She's a case in point. She was very careful with what she sang. So she chose to sing softer parts like Handel's Messiah and pieces like that. Well, I wouldn't say softer. I'd, I'd say slightly lighter, no heaviness in that, her voice. Thank you for correcting me. She didn't let the public or managers or conductors drag her into repertoire that would have stressed her voice that would have taken her out of where her world was, her vocal comfort. And she went to a singing teacher all her life, Vera Rocha. So she had that objective view of someone who'd known her voice all her life. So she was still, to all intents and purposes, sounding wonderful right up until a much older age than 50. But she began to slow down on the number of performances and uh, the number of appearances. But that's an example of a singer who really actually said this, that I'd said earlier. She didn't want to go on singing longer than she felt she could do it. She was always very self-aware, but she looked after her voice. And there are examples, sadly, of wonderful singers who were pushed or rushed into bigger repertoires, such as Wagner. The great music critic and music lover Bernard Levin used to call her his Kiri Bird because when he heard her singing, he was just blown away by the beauty and purity and clarity and musicality of her voice. She would never have sung Wagner, would she? No. Because her voice, although soprano, was not big soprano. So no, give me an example of, of somebody who's a singer who's got a, a huge Wagnerian voice. Well, John Tomlinson, the bass, a fantastic bass. 
His voice simply got richer the older he got. So his career was quite long, and it might have even been 15 to 20 years of singing Wotans in the ring cycle. Give me an example, for instance, of a Brunhilde. Kirsten Flagstadt. Yeah. Going all the way back. And when you hear her sing, you can tell you would not like to be within five metres when that voice came at you. When you're teaching at the Conservatoire, I sometimes ask you and say, what were they like today? Who did you have? And, and I often say, can you see any emerging stars? When you teach them, what do you teach them? <laughs> well, it sounds mundane, but because vocal training in a Conservatoire is only ever about the voice, i.e. training the voice, I basically draw their attention to what the voice has to do, must do, to interpret a song, an aria. It can be anything. It's always the same. And does the pupil I... bring that in? Oh, yes, yes. They yes. bring in that they piece, bring a and, piece say, of music. and say, I want and to And they study. often say, what would you like? I've got this and that. And I simply tell them it's their choice. So I want them to make a choice to sing something. What people sometimes say to me, why is the opera singing voice so different from what they call ordinary singing voices? What is it about the, the sound of an opera singer that is so different from, let's say, a crooner? And what part of the body is differently used? First of all, you're talking about the mouth and the nose, the nasal cavities. The mouth is an echo chamber. We talk about the placing of a, of a vowel. A vowel needs to be needs to be thought about. Look, I mean, I can give you examples. The vowel, eh, well, that's one way, but another proper, a good way of singing it would be, eh, which has more breath control behind it, more focus, more dynamic, it's louder, and I opened the sound a bit more. You cannot learn how to sing operas without a teacher. It's a long process, and it's a pretty demanding process. And singing lessons are very, very technical. A student has to really trust the objective view. It's what you said earlier. It's about the body. The body is the singer's instrument. So you need someone outside it. It's not like playing, uh, playing an instrument. When the sound is coming out of the bell of the oboe, you can hear the sound you're making. Well, singers can't hear. That's why everybody's shocked the first time they hear their recorded voice, mm. because they didn't think they sounded like that. I played a character recently in a film called Falling for Figaro, where I was an opera coach. <laughs> and <laughs> it's horrid. I know, and I, I brought it back to you and said, would they really, did they really do this? And you said, no, I don't know anything. Mm. Then somebody came from New York and said, oh, I knew a coach who was as tough as this. In, in this, 
the coach dragged the, the soprano's tongue and held it out of her mouth like that and said, sing, 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 sing. And, and hurt her, actually hurt her, sort of half strangled her, made her sing through all kinds of horrible vicissitudes, which seemed to be wrong and bad. But people since then have come out of the woodwork and said, it can be quite tough. Are you a tough coach, Stevie? This is, I'm working my way around to it. Are you I completely hateful to them? I don't think so. Singers, the little I do, because I love working with younger artists, the little I do is not teaching, it's it coaching. is coaching. And it's coaching the music and the text. That's what I do, which is, of course, what I do as a conductor. But look here, the point is there are different singing voices, as we all know. So how, for example, do we define the difference between a Mick Jagger and a David Bowie and an Ella Fitzgerald? you know, pop singing now, how do we think about Where do they come from? I know, it's interesting because it's a lot of beautiful singers come from gospel choirs. As kids, they were all had to sing in church. They sang a lot. Beautiful voices. Beautiful voices. But Would you say that Bowie had a beautiful voice? No. Mick? I'm sorry, Mick. <laughs> no, look, you're putting me on the spot here. No, a lot of a lot of singers have a different quality which sells their records. That's exactly and it isn't the beauty right. of their voice, it's a different kind of dynamic. Yeah. Beauty is in the ear of the beholder to a certain extent, because I adored Matt Munro and I adored all kinds of people whose voices seemed to me to be velvet and magic and never put a, never hit a bum note. Because although I can't sing myself, I can't forgive people who sing and hit bad notes. So I'm very harsh on that. Isn't that interesting that the people from that age, you know, we're talking about Sinatra, Sammy yeah. Davis, uh, Dean Martin, yeah. Nat King Cole, the Ella Fitzgerald, the Doris Day, the whole pantheon of wonderful singers who did not sing out of tune. Ever. Mahalia that Jackson, kind of never. says something. Yeah. It kind of says something about a natural understanding of their voice. And a natural acceptance by human beings, because we now love to see the human, I, the human flaws in everything. We love to see things going wrong. I mean, human beings now love the second rate. Now, that sounds awful. I don't mean that in a horrible way. But we've got so used to it, we think it's great. We've got whole programs designed to show the things that went wrong in programs that we make, bloopers or mistakes or gaffes. There are whole programs about how people go badly wrong in walks of life, accidents, food that goes wrong, dogs that behave mm. badly. Mm. We simply adore things that aren't good. We kind of like them as an antidote to things that are very good. And I think that's crept in because I don't think they would have been quite so celebrated in, unless they were meant to be clowning, unless they were meant to be people like Max War or something who were brilliant, but would, or Norman Wisdom who would trip over and fall over. Hugely musical. But he would trip and fall and be a silly little man on purpose. But now we like catching people or tripping people up and laughing at them. So it's different. And I think the same is with music. We forgive anybody. They go, well, they're having, having a go. We know what the music is roughly supposed to be. I, I think we forgive a lot of music. I, well, I, I think the people who survive in terms of popularity and success in the pop and rock world and the jazz world generally seem to have this innate understanding of how their voice works and how to pitch. Now, I... This is interesting, is it not, that certain people, including my mother was one of them, who said, they say they can't sing. 
they actually say they can't sing. And I believe everybody can sing. It's just everybody's on a spectrum of how easy it is to get to grips with it. And I stood next to my ma in church, uh, you know, with a tiny boy, and, and she did sing the tunes. But I could tell she wasn't breathing properly. She wasn't thinking about how to produce tone, unlike my granny, who, who produced a huge vibrato. <laughs> um, everybody has a voice, and if they speak and they articulate any kind of language, they are using pitch and projection. I think I was wrong when I said people like you say Mick Jagger. He's not a voice, he's a singer. And what he does when he sings, what David Bowie does when they sing, is they put a song across in such a way that you don't want to hear it by anybody else. Bowie could be speaking or screaming the words at you, like in the song Five Years, but his charm and character just sweep you up on a journey which you hope will never end. It's a different kind of music. You know, it's like anything. Poetry used to be written in rhyme and metre. And most poetry now is blank verse, an awful lot of it anyway. Quite honestly, if there was an academy for pop singers and they had to go through an, a, a college, I don't think anybody would get there. Pop singers simply have the conviction that they want to, they want to do and it. And part of the attraction is, is their unworked-on voice, is their natural, is the sound they make. That's the, that's the sound that's required. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, we're, we're stepping deep into deep water here because we literally don't know what we're talking about now. Now we do... We've, Wandered into a world. <laughs> no, when we talk about pop singing, you're talking about somebody in 1978. We're, we're, we're talking about the now, Barlow. And we, we are That's a depth. first for me. <laughs> I wish we could think of somebody to take us out of this because I think we, we could almost have two kinds of music to take us out of this. Voices. So we'd want a man and a woman. We might want a popular song and an aria. No, you choose something, though, because you, 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 you choose... You choose a well, you singer. Played me that, something. UK, you played me something yesterday, which seemed to me the extremes of human voice, and it was John Tavener's piece. A, the sounds of that modern music <clears throat> completely blew me away. Secondly, the there was a, the singing it, the woman, particularly that high soprano. Can we have a snatch of that? June Barton, I think was her name. Yeah, why not? It starts, and then this unearthly high soprano. Yes. It could only create that effect because it's a voice. It's the Celtic Requiem by John Tavener, one of the pieces that brought him to fame and fortune when he was very young. And we will be talking about this piece in a later podcast. been listening to Joanna and the Maestro, a cup and nuzzle burning bright productions and Bauer media show. It's presented by me, Joanna Lumley, and my husband, Stephen Barlow. 
Our executive producers are Matt Everett, Graham Hodge and Clive Tullow. The show is produced and edited by Hunter Charlton and Ben Tullow and mix and mastering is by Granny Eatswolf and David Bloor. Our head of production is Rebecca Mills, our production manager is Sarah Anderson and our production coordinator is Maxim Taylor. All music for the intros is supplied courtesy of Naxos Music UK. In this episode you heard the following music. Die Entfahrung aus dem Saleil, K384, Ha, wie will ich triumphieren, by Mozart. It was performed by Marty Telvella, Gosta Winberg, Edita Brubarova, the Vienna Philharmonic, and conducted by Sir George Salty. The record label was Decca Music Group Limited. Don Giovanni, K527, De Vienna alla Finestra by Mozart. Performed by José Van Damme, Jean-Pierre Vallès, and the Ensemble Orchestral de Paris. The record label was Classic World Limited. The Barber of Seville, Largo al Factorum by Giaucino Rossini. Performed by Gino Becchi. The record label was Play Digital. Turandot, Nessun Dorma by Giacomo Puccini. It was performed by Luciano Pavarotti. The John Aldis Choir, the Wandsworth School Boys Choir, and the London Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Zumin Meta. The record label was Decca Music Group Limited. Circe, Largo, by George Friedrich Handel, performed by Dame Janet Baker and the English Chamber Orchestra, conducted by Raymond Leopard. The record label was Decca, a division of Universal Music Operations Limited. The Rosenkavalier. Opus 59, Mir ist de Erwiderhaven, by Richard Strauss. It was performed by Barbara Bonney, Susan Graham, and the Vienna Philharmonic, conducted by Christoph Eschenbach. The record label was Decca Music Group Limited. Die Zauberflot, K620. Act 2, Queen of the Night's Aria, by Mozart. It was performed by Patricia Pettibon, and the Concerto Köln conducted by Daniel Harding. The record label was Decca Music Group Limited. Simone Bocanegra, Act 1, Scene 2. Abasso Lespade, Plebe Patrizi Papolo della Ferrose Storia, by Giuseppe Verdi. It was performed by Placido Domingo, Achilles Machado, Gianluca Barato, Fernando Piqueras, Boniface Carrillo, Pablo Jerez Casado, Orchestra della Comunitat Valenciana, Cor della Generalitat Valencia, and the conductor was Francesco Parales. The record label was Sony Music Entertainment. Orfeo ed Eredici, Act 3, Che faro senza Eredici, by Christoph Willibald Gluck. It was performed by Dame Janet Baker and the English Chamber Orchestra, conducted by Raymond Leopard. The record label was Decca Music Group Limited. Messiah, HWV 56. I Know That My Redeemer Liveth, by George Friedrich Handel. It was performed by Dame Kiri Takanawa and the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Sir George Salty. The publisher was Berenreiter Verlag Karl Waterle and Faber Music Limited. The record label was Decca Music Group Limited. D. Valkyrie, Act 2. And Andres ist Actevol by Richard Wagner. It was performed by John Tomlinson, 
and the Bayreuth Festival Orchestra, conducted by Daniel Barenboim. The record label was Teldec Classics International. Die Valkyrie, Hodjo Toho, by Richard Wagner. It was performed by Kirsten Flagstadt. The record label was Unchained Melody. Five Years, written and performed by David Bowie. The publishers were Warner Chappelle Music Limited, BMG Rights Management UK, and EMI Music Publishing Limited. The record label was Jones slash Tintoretto Entertainment Company LLC, under exclusive license to Parlophone Records Limited, a Warner Music Group company. A Celtic Requiem, one. Requiem Itenam by Sir John Taverner. It was performed by David Atherton, June Barton, London Sinfonietta, the London Sinfonietta Chorus, and the children from the Missenden Village School, conducted by Sir John Taverner. The publisher was Chester Music, and record label was Apple Corps Limited. All music for the intro is supplied courtesy of Naxos Music UK. Mozart's Exultate Jubilate K165 performed by Pretty Coles, Camerata Casovia, and conducted by Johannes Wildner, licensed courtesy of Naxos Music UK Limited.